This is a production of Cornell University. No problem. Uh, thanks, everybody. This is episode 10 of the Cornell Church Show this year. We're halfway through our kind of spring series here. Um, this Friday, we're, we're talking sports turf. Our guest today, a PhD candidate from Penn State, uh, Evan Maschetti. We've got some really cool stuff we're going to talk to Evan about um, regarding surface playability of infields and, and some cool data visualization that, that we'll talk about a recent sports management article that Evan wrote. Uh, that got us interested in this. But uh, as always, we'll start with Frank, a little overview of the week, uh, maybe some uh, fun little tidbits in there from the last week. Ah, for sure, for sure. Evan, I believe this is your handiwork, brother, back back in the day. Yeah, it's a good, I like that pattern. That's usually what we'd put in for opening day, the uh, the diamonds and pirate pirates took one on the chin yesterday, but uh, the field looks as good as it always does. So Matt's doing a great yeah, job there. That's so great. Well, don't talk to me about taking it on the chin. We paid $200 million. We're four games, five games in. And I think the Yanks have scored five runs and half of them are on two home runs. Uh, that they <laughs> we're, Obviously, as you can tell, we're talking baseball, but if you think you're having a hard time with your soccer field, how about trying to line out that baby uh, every week and trying to keep that in shape? And so uh, let me just review things for the week and remind you, we didn't see the sports guys last week. We did lawn and grounds last week um just you know no i don't need to remind you all you gotta do is look out your door and they're out playing spring sports are playing youth sports are playing everybody's feeling like it's uh, pretty wide open now uh, a lot of comfortableness around high school sports maybe not as many fans uh but certainly as you can see on the left and i showed last week our division one soccer team is at it on our rye poa soccer field and it's really uh sort of taking it on the chin here. So um, since we're talking about traffic and use and where, like to be uh, out ahead and current on these things, uh, prostrate, not weed, probably is actively germinating now. That's a picture on the bottom left of the seedlings. You gotta look really close. It might look like a grass, but you can easily see the dicots, uh, the very seedling, they tend to come up in a big bunch and then literally thin quite a bit over time to the point where they become like a toupee or as Randy Prostak says, sometimes a doily. Uh, they tend to be uh, crowded along uh, high traffic areas on your sports field, but also along the curbsides where it's a little bit warmer soil. Most of these germinants are happening uh, uh, on uh, along the sidewalk where it's quite a bit warmer or as you get further south, obviously in the compacted areas that also might get and stay warmer quicker. Now. Uh, a good identifying feature as these things get older is this little piece of membrane that happens at the nodes. I'm teaching weed ID and turf now, so I, I thought I'd bring this to everybody's attention. This is a good way to identify this plant once you get it uh, in, in the landscape to know what you've got. It's a summer annual. It's really up quick. It's going to flower soon and get out of there. And this is a clear indication of poor soil problems. So if you're fighting or seeing uh, problems with this weed, uh, even in your baseball infields, it's likely from the compaction that you're doing there. Now, since we're talking about weeds, you go to our forecast website. For those of you able to use chemical herbicides in the spring, it is not the ideal time, as you know. Now, of course, Dan Scheid told us last week on the grounds edition, uh, he uses herbicides here at Cornell and, and they spray them at fall break. Uh, so when we have broadleaf issues, we target some areas and we do it when the students are primarily not uh, traipsing around the campus. So if you're doing it now, obviously you may have some exposure issues. You wanna be careful about that. You obviously gotta follow all the rules and regs. 
But you see here, the two formulations, particularly of 2,4-D that you could have in your compound is gonna determine how effective they are in the spring based on some research that was done back at Purdue many years ago, uh, back uh, designing growing degree day models for spring dandelion control using 2,4-D. And so you can see, you know, there's a slight advancement to ester. The ester formulation uh, works a little bit better uh, at, you know, in under cooler temperatures, you need warmer temperatures for the amine uh, to be effective. So we're still quite a ways from doing any kind of control here. I'll draw your attention to the latest uh, growing degree day tracker where we're looking at crabgrass uh, pre-emergence timing. And again, this model is suggesting that we're late. Now I can tell you people are regularly commenting to me and in our conference call weekly, uh, we hear about the forsythias maybe being a better uh, target for this now. So we're seeing a lot of forsythia bloom. We still think we have a week or so or two for germination. And again, if it starts to get cool, we could start to uh, arrest this entire process. So again, if you're using pre-emergent herbicides, you, you want to think about this. But the other thing to do in sports fields operations is to get some seed down. As you start to see the turf thinning, from the traffic, it's best to start getting some overseeding down. Well, of course, overseeding and unirrigated areas are going to be related to, you know, the amount of rainfall you get. So, you know, we haven't had that much rainfall through much of the region, you know, less than an inch, except along the coast or wherever Rich Buckley is. Wherever Rich Buckley is, it seems to rain on a pretty regular basis and usually on Thursdays. And you can see uh, over the last week, the little bit of rain we've gotten is it been in central South New Jersey and along the coast uh, at, at the east end of Long Island as well. But overall, in the last 30 days, much of New York State is 25 to 75 percent of normal. So we're certainly not at normal rainfall. So we're going to be a little bit on the dry side. There's some reprieve coming for sure uh, in the next couple of days, but no one thinks it's going to be a big soak in rainfall, maybe an inch if we're lucky, but it might just be a quarter or a half in some places. Now, soils are warming, right? Soils are getting going, right? And so now out, when you're down in the metropolitan New York area, uh, you can start to see and that you're starting to get warm soils into the 50s, and you're probably going to start to see some growth. Now, with average temperatures still, you know, uh, well above normal, 10 degrees above normal into the 60s, we're at a really high potential for growth. So you're going to see your sports field grasses start to grow significantly. I wanted to draw your attention to some work that another good Wisconsinite has done. And Doug uh, was talking to us about Bill Kreiser, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about non, uh, you know, growth potential and growth and traffic and PGRs. And Bill's done a lot of uh, clipping collection over the years. And what he did is he tracked uh, non-irrigated Kentucky bluegrass growth in Nebraska from May to October. There is a predicted growth potential. And then there is the actual clipping production that he measured during the year. And you see there is a disconnect, particularly when you're not irrigated. Now here is irrigated tall fescue. And again, early in the season, lots of high predictions for growth. Uh, but then during the season, you start to see July, August, where the actual end of predicted is close. And then in the shoulders of the season, not so much. So again, this is weird. If you're thinking about bimodal curves of cool season turf grasses, 
you would think it would be a typical bimodal curve, and this is the argument Bill was making, would be really good growth in the spring, low in the summer, and then picking it up again a little bit in the fall. And you see it's exactly opposite, right? So, so how do we reconcile this? Well, we reconcile it by trying to understand our growth better, right? How much it's growing, how much we have to mow, what height we're mowing at. Now, currently we're mowing with people. Soon sports fields are gonna be an easy adaptation for uh, better robotic autonomous mowing when we see it. For sure, uh, there's gonna be a future for this technology, I think, especially once they can do the patterns that we become so accustomed to, which, you know, I think they're pretty close to development. But since we're talking about mowing and we're talking about traffic, let me draw your attention to some old Michigan State research that Tim Vanini many years ago uh, did with Trey Rogers uh, out at MSU, where they were looking at a different, a number of different fertilizer programs. And I don't think those are necessarily uh, relative to what the point we're trying to make here. This is the number of simulated soccer games you can get on a field mowing once per week versus mowing twice per week. And you can see it's quite a bit of an improvement. If even with a medium fertilizer program, you're going from maybe about 14 games that allow you to keep acceptable turf cover to about 24 games, right? That's a pretty significant increase. And you see that in every case, independent independent in some ways of the fertilizer use, right? So mowing more, and Doug talked about this yesterday in the golf session, mowing more actually does stimulate growth. So if you've got some uh, growth going, mowing more frequently is a way of keeping up with some traffic tolerance, even if it is a two inch height of cut like this soccer field was tested. Now, we're going to make our transition to what Evan is our resident expert on, but we'll start out with the reality that probably is not reflected in this wonderful article we're going to talk about that got published in Sports Field Management. But let me just remind everybody that there are actual standards that if you're in the business of managing baseball fields, and baseball is by far one of the trickiest, as we'll talk about with Evan in a second, the ball interacts with two different surfaces, but particularly the standards on the skin surfaces become really important to understand. Now, there's been some interesting work done in this area, even back into Connecticut. Uh, Bill Dest, Carl Guillard have done a bunch of work there. Two good solid soil scientists have really done good work in this area years ago, where they looked at a variety of uh, different mixes um, and with and without calcine clay, looking at the various kinds of materials you could use uh, in baseball infields in Connecticut. And they found, you know, significant impacts of the amount of soil, significant impacts of the amount of calcined clay. But one of the things that really came out was that moisture had a big uh, effect on friction. Now, we're going to start to get into these words, shear and friction, uh, in a second as we geek out on this. But Evan, before I bring you in, I want to tell you, we've thought about this before with uh, Chase Straw and Gerald Henry, who have done, obviously, surface hardness testing. This is some work that Siffers and Beards have looked at. Siffers and Beard looked at a long time ago, where they were dropping the clay hammer on different surfaces. You know, fourteen hundred G max values on a cement floor, and they actually did a couple of infields uh, back in the day. They were doing some research back then, also on on inclusion uh, mesh inclusion stuff uh, that actually Dan Danelli started to look at uh, for uh, golf courses, and so they've developed these ways of testing these fields. Chase has done this work with Gerald. 
And then they're coming up with these really cool um, maps of these surfaces. And one of the things they talk about that I know you do in the article is consistency. Now, before I introduce you, and I talked a little bit about your work and try to set you up pretty good so you can answer some questions, is a little homage to Brother Brosnan, who is a lot older than he looks uh, and was young when he worked with McNitt uh, and had a little stint many people might not know uh, out at the University of Hawaii, unless you think Jim wasn't the surfing type. Jim had developed that, you know, whatever the pen thing is you call it, Evan, that shoots the missile baseballs uh, into the ground that was a, a step above the jugs gun that probably everybody else was, uh, you know, the pitching machine that everybody else was using. And that all led, of course, to this wonderful article that just got published. Uh, at least I just saw it recently and back last month. So sorry I didn't pick up on it right away, Evan. But it looks like you took about, you took data from 40,000 batted balls during the 2020 uh, baseball season and uh, sort of looked at how uh, much like the other guys were doing with the uh, variability uh, in the field, uh, in the sports fields, you did it to the baseball infields. Now, you in this article, and I'm going to commend this article to anybody that gets involved in this, you talked about consistency, uh, bounce, pace, spin, cork board stuff, the cleating in and out. You got all this cool data, you know, you did it all. This is, you know, Carl and I are fascinated about this in golf as well. And that's part of the reason you're here. So I wanted to give you a chance now to first say uh, thanks for doing this uh, great work. And then, you know, obviously a lot of people we deal with in, in uh, you know, in my extension life, and you know, with your uh, Keystone sports field guys, the CAFMO guys, you know, not everybody's got resources. Uh, not everybody has the same kind of surfaces. Not pe people can't cover their infields, right? Not everybody's got a major league or a minor league operation. So I wanna give you a chance to talk about your wealth of experience in this area, Evan, and where somebody might start. And because you said consistency is important, what are some of the consistency factors uh, that you, you think uh, are important? So sorry for uh, being so long-winded, uh, but, but I really wanted to give everybody a chance who's not familiar with this kind of stuff to understand it a little bit better. So welcome to the show. Where would you tell people to start with this, Evan, in the real world that isn't like the ballpark behind it? Sure. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I'm a great admirer of all the content you guys put out and uh, it's, it's great to join. Um, I think, you know, the biggest thing with consistency is that the, the ball has to react the way the player sort of expects it to. And so when you, if you're a shortstop or a third baseman or, or whatever you're playing, um, as soon as that ball is hit, you make a subconscious calculation about where the ball is going to end up. And you do that based on your experience of how the ball normally reacts. And so you're going to take that first step to take the right angle based on what you predict. So that's kind of the first thing. And that part's really not so different from even hitting a fastball where you have to kind of predict where the ball is going to be without really being able to, to watch it hit the bat, so to speak in real time. So, um, you know, pro athletes are so, they're so good that no matter how fast the ball is traveling, they can pretty much feel that as long as they can anticipate what's going to happen. So as long as it's consistent, I think the speed and the bounce, those things are kind of secondary. Um, but when it comes back to maybe at a lower level, that might not be the case. And so you really are depending on um, the ball reacting exactly the same way all the time. Right, now, so when it comes to, 
let, let me lead you up a little bit because now at the lower levels, you've got two possibilities. Maybe this is a way to bifurcate the conversation. Do you, would you recommend guys mostly had grass, right? Because there's no rules. Or would you recommend they had all skinned infield if they had their druthers? And then, of course, I showed the picture of the synthetic turf, which enters in. And I've been a strong advocate for the further north you get, is synthetic turf on baseball fields is if consistency is what you're after, man, that is a way to get it, I think. First, let's start with what do you like to see? Mostly dirt or grass and dirt, or does that make it harder? Yeah, I think you can go both ways. I mean, on a full-size infield, at least, maintaining the, the crown and the grade over time is going to be a little more difficult because that water can erode the soil a little bit more easily. Um, obviously, in that kind of a scenario, you're not putting a tarp on when it's raining. Um, the flip side is that there's no lips. There's no lips to maintain. And, you know, at the youth level, uh, if you don't have, obviously, if you don't have access to water, you're not, you're not being able to soak the infield down. You definitely don't have the same resources to take care of your lips. And I'll tell you, you know, that in certainly in the major leagues or in the minor leagues, good, good edges are what separate, you know, average fields from good fields. And you can, it's hard to know unless you're out there walking around and feeling what it's like. So I, I totally understand um, not having that extra, extra maintenance headache of maintaining the lips, sucking dirt out of there with, with vacuum cleaners and hosing it out every two weeks. And it's a lot of work to maintain those edges the right way. And so I think definitely there is a place for the all skin surface. How long until um, we think we're at a place where uh, when you were with the Pirates and I, you know, I'm pals with Dan Cunningham. Dan as I, has taught me a lot in the 30 years we've been Absolutely. interacting about, you know, the nuances of taking care of these things. And he's like, yeah, Frank, I, anybody can strike the grass. Let me tell you how hard the infield is. And they certainly can subtly feel like they adjust things. Let's start with a bit of a myth you dispel in the article. I remember when Derek Jeter got a little bit older, the thought was, well, you know, the, the message from upstairs was, well, can't you raise the height on the grass and won't that slow the ball down? Let's start there. How does the height of the grass and the way we deal with the turf surfaces impact the consistency stuff we're talking about? Sure. Even at the younger levels. Especially. Yeah, I think definitely in an extreme case, it can play a big role. I mean, if you're mowing at four inches and you hit a ball, you know, ball into that, it's going to just the same way that when, um, you know, at the U.S. Open when the rough is cut at six inches or whatever it is, it's, that's going to definitely affect the way the club interacts with the ball, whatever. But at a, you know, at a, a more micro scale, I think the difference between uh, cutting at an inch and an eighth and an inch and a sixteenth, it, it's hard to imagine that that plays a pretty big difference. That sometimes, like as you mentioned in that article, perceptions reality though. And I've never done this. I've never done this personally, but I've heard stories of like a, a team going out of town, the manager, you know, saying, "Hey, we we really want to speed the infield up, and let's the team plays really good while they're out of town, and when they come back, you just tell them that you you, know, you cut it down by an eighth of an inch. They're they're not going to go out there with a prism gauge and check, you know, what your height of cut is." <laughs> Does rolling have a place in keeping these fields, be they gra infields, grass or infield, uh, consistent? Do you see yeah. rolling as part of what even a smaller operation could do to bring some consistency if you can't do all the things that maybe you know you'd like to do i do think rolling has a place um for keeping the surface smooth definitely i i know um certainly in the, this time of year it's really important to get a good a good roll to repack your infield after the freeze thaw um cycles over the winter i heard brian winka i think talk about that recently on on this show and um but definitely even on the infield grass for from a consistency and smoothness standpoint that can be a good idea obviously you don't want to overdo it and induce compaction and you know cause yourself more headaches but i think that that can be a good tool okay so again 
part of what makes it um, ape for you guys to dial in is the material that you use. Uh, we talked about this with Winka the last time. I'm, I'm like a dog with a bone about it because honestly, I feel that this is probably where kids are in fact at the greatest risk relative to field safety because a projectile, hello, is coming to them. And I think as you or Brosnan said, about 40 to 60% is reduced, right? So now we know ball velocity because we got all that data and you're telling me it's 40 to 60%. That means a kid could hit it at somebody at 40 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour pretty easily if it's a big kid in a youth league. Um, how much... Uh, are we worried about that when we roll? And then the issue with regard to materials in the dirt, you know, in the dirt skin that the ball's hitting. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you use the D word as an academic, because sometimes when I say the word dirt around the circles of people that I hang with, you know, they look at you like you kick their dog or something. Yeah. But <laughs> um, I think it. I think from a, the standpoint of, of predictable hops, um, that cleat in cleat out concept is really important. And that's so having the right material will help help um, with that. And certainly just grooming, getting out there with a nail drag, um, even if it's not every day, every few days when you have the right moisture. And if, if you're in a scenario where you don't have access to water, it's really important to take advantage after a rainfall to get out there when the surface is firm, but that you can actually get the nails to penetrate into the surface so you can scarify those cleat marks out. And that's something that at a high level, it's done every day or potentially multiple times a day. But at the youth level, you know, you don't really have the, uh, the resources to be able to do that, but try, try and time it right and take advantage after that, rain, that rainfall that you can actually um, smooth the surface out with a nail drag and then possibly get a roll on it to, to recompact everything. Okay, the big dilemma, as, as I've come to understand, uh, geeking out on infield stuff, uh, is uh, management of moisture. And sure. thank you for sharing that about, um, you know, sneaking in, sneaking in during, during the rain. Uh, Dan laments, and I'm sure the, old, the person at Wrigley that plays day games laments, when they get a perfect, uh, when they start a day game, and then the ET comes and the moisture starts to come out of it, Right. And uh, your point about it being consistent and want it to be the same way, Dan used to want to go out in the middle of the fifth inning and wet the field down again. And then sure. he got like, no, no, no more of that. And so, how do you deal with that shifting moisture that occurs? You know, obviously it happens in a professional game, but these are kids now that may play spring sports on a couple of days after a rain. They come back, it's been dry for five days. They don't have the ability to water. Now they're playing on a totally different field. What would you tell a guy managing a field like that? How to keep those kids safe and try to do the best you can to keep that field consistent under that known variability that's going to happen? Yeah, man, I wish I had a better answer. Um, that's, that's a tough one. When you, when, you can't, when you can't add any water, it's very, it's very difficult. Um, I think one thing that can help to some degree is making sure you do have a layer of conditioner on the field. Um, the conditioner is talked about a lot in terms of managing the moisture, holding moisture and whatnot. And I, that's not really what I'm getting at. It's more to do with um, filling in small imperfections in the surface. So one thing that will happen is this, as it gets harder, obviously this its surface is going to be more rigid. And so if you do have one of those pock marks and the ball hits it, it's more likely to carry them as opposed to um, when the, the, the soil does have some moisture in it. The, the surface is really going to deform again around the ball. And that's one of the things I kind of talk about in that article. So 
I think although the conditioner is not, it's not a total, it's not a perfect solution. It's not a substitute for nail drag and having a smooth, you know, underlying surface. It can help a little bit because those particles will fill in some of the small depressions and it can help kind of insulate or, or shield the surface, so to speak, from that ball hitting it. And so that, that can help reduce some bad hops too, just having that material on top. And it also lets the players even fix little depressions on their own with their cleats during the game. They can kind of fill them in as, a, as they go. So, um, I mean, that, that's what I'm thinking about. I got, I got one more sort of technical question and one more sort of baseball question about how this fits into the nutball analytics that, that is modern baseball these days. But when you have a sense that maybe the field's going to have that variability and you're trying to work with your athletes about it, would you recommend occasionally to raise the height, to slow the ball down? Or, are, I mean, are we getting closer to the point where sports guys, even at school districts, are going to have ways to measure the performance of these fields like we're doing on grass fields, these infield systems now, and then be able to tell the coach, you know, it's going to be a fast, hard field today, or it's going to be a slow, wet field, like we do in golf, right? I mean, the Masters was hard and fast, and then we're going to get some rain, and it's going to be, you know, a little bit softer. Do you think we're going to be able to get to that place or do you, did you come back for your PhD to help us get to that place where we can start to use these numbers to make decisions? Yeah, I think it's a black box. I mean, there's really no way to measure a lot of the things that we talk about. And even one of the things that I talked about in that article, I don't have ways to measure most of them, you know, on a baseball field. Um, some of the synthetic turf companies have done some work with high-speed imaging, actually, to measure the angle the ball is coming off at and those kind of things. And there's a ton of research on cricket and tennis, um, which are pretty analogous. But baseball, it is a little different because, like you said at the top, um, you have the two different surfaces to deal with. And I think circling back to this question, you know, on the, on the grass, as far as like raising the height up or, or lowering the height down, a lot of times the turf area is going to, it's almost always going to be slower. It's going to play slower than the, than the skin area. So if you really want the two to be equal, it's almost like anything you can do to speed the grass up or slow the dirt down you know, to make it more equal is going to be sort of in your benefit. And that's not, that's not always true, but I think in general, that's the case. Um, I, I think the key here uh, to me, based on the yard work, what you're showing, is that moisture, if you have baseball fields that have skinned infields and grass, you have to have water available. You simply yeah. not. Now, Dan would say you need a cover too. That's a different animal. Is that as important than having the ability to put water, particularly in the Northeast, or is a cover uh, or both? Well, I think they kind of go hand in hand because if you have enough labor, it's really comes down to the labor, right? If you have enough people to be able to put the tarp on, you might, you definitely have enough to, to be able to soak it down also. Um, there's, there's other ways around that. You can install like an, like another set of skinheads that will, that will water some parts of the dirt, but you're still going to have to touch it up by hand because there's no irrigation system that can handle that geometry really that well. Um, I guess one last point on the consistency part of the, of the turf is one thing that happens to lower level baseball fields a lot in the grass area is as the turf wears, it gets really clumpy. And those, those can cause like bad bounces too, especially if you're dealing with a bunch type grass, like a perennial rye, um, the bluegrass, you know, has obviously different traits in general, but it does, it wears a little bit more evenly. It doesn't tend to form those clumps quite as bad. And so that can help keep it a little bit smoother too. So how long until uh, Sabermetrics starts to integrate data from the baseball field's performance characteristics that you're now learning how to characterize? 
Yeah, it would be cool. Um, I, it's funny to talk to like the baseball people. They seem to not be that interested in it. Like, so when I, I was at the, when I was at the, at the pirates, I made friends with a couple of the analytics people. And I asked one of them like, Hey, do you have any data, you know, on the way the ball bounces and stuff? And he kind of looked at me and he was like, Oh, like, I mean, I, I'd never really thought about that before. Like we're really more interested in the balls going up than the balls going down. And that's what they're looking at. Like the launch angles. And yeah. if it, if it's hit on the ground, that's kind of like a lost cause to them in a lot of cases. Yeah. And, 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 and if you're a Yankee infielder, it doesn't matter if you don't want the ball on the ground because they can't freaking catch it. If they catch it, they're lucky to get it to first base. Don't get me yeah. started about my home yeah. team here having a tough time early in the year. Defense is simply not valued, uh, and that's probably why they don't care about these things. Yeah. I see a comment here from Ben Polymer about watering skins being difficult with small staff. It's totally a great comment, Ben. I totally agree. Um, it's just not practical in those kind of cases. Having the right material, does it does go a long way to um, not just – to withstand rain events, but to hold the, onto that moisture and keep it playable for a longer period of time after you do get some. And it, it, it definitely goes without saying that, but I'll just say it to be clear, water, the water content is everything on the infield skin if you're after this cleat in, cleat out and, and the, the optimum ball response. There's, and if you can't water at all, there's just no way to really achieve that. So you can still take steps to make it as good as, as, good as you can Perfect. by having the right material. We got a question, Carl. Yeah, so uh, actually Vitas had a question um, talking about if you're kind of a, a minimal maintenance field, and Frankie showed a picture earlier of a, what I would call a minimal maintenance field, what is sort of the, the first thing you would uh, tell them to go after? The first kind of uh, resource, maybe they're able to convince, maybe this is a school district, hey, I need to put some, some infrastructure on this field, some more money. What is the first thing you would tell them? Is it a, a soil moisture thing? Is it a, you know, a, a soil texture uh, amendment what, what would be the first thing you'd go after yeah. in a situation so like that so i think a thing that we talk about often in sports turf is managing the field within the field and i know frank you've talked about that um on overseeding you know just an airifying doing things down the middle of the field if you can and the same concept applies to baseball and it's even a smaller area so most you know, we talked about the infield skin here a lot but um really the, the mound and the home plate are the absolute most important parts of the field. And so keeping those in, in good condition will go a long way. And one of the, I wouldn't say the easiest things, but we're talking about one of the first, you know, relatively cheap things you can do is uh, installing like an easy to maintenance, easy to maintain clay, not, not the most expensive, you know, high tech major league stiff black gumbo clay, but just, you know, you're at your, your less plastic um, mound clay and then, and then maintaining it with a tarp. So buy, buy, don't buy a landscape tarp at Lowe's, you know, buy a real thick vinyl um, or polyester uh, tarp that's meant for a baseball field and keep your areas covered. It'll help um, keep the water out, but it's also going to help keep the water in. And you'll find that you use less material that way because it doesn't displace as badly. So that's a little bit of a learning curve, taking care of the clay, you know, if you haven't before. But um, the pitchers are going to appreciate it. The batters are going to appreciate it. And that's really, that's sort of the low hanging fruit, I think, to get get started anyway is is um installing the clay and then keeping the moisture right that is an absolute perfect way to end this time evan thank you so much for taking the time what a joy uh it's opening you know i'm all happy these days because baseball's back in in business and we're gonna have a whole long season i hope so thanks for taking the time i'll forgive you for being at penn state because you're a wisconsin <laughs> otherwise me. You no know, i always got trouble with those penn state guys carl get us out of here yeah, thanks to everyone for joining halfway through our, our Cornell Turf Show this year.
the link to Evan's article will be below in the YouTube video and it'll be attached to our podcast as well. So uh, thanks everybody for joining. We'll be back next Thursday for our golf uh, episode. See you all then. Appreciate that, Evan. See you, Carl. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.